0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Our Whistle Stop today is just after Memorial Day 1988. Lee Atwater, the top campaign strategist for Vice President George Bush's presidential campaign, is talking to Jim Pinkerton, a member of that campaign's research department. George Bush is 16 points down in the polls to Michael Dukakis, the Democratic governor of Massachusetts. Bush had once been up by a handful. To change this dynamic, Atwater, who grew up in Aiken, South Carolina, hands Pinkerton a 3x5 card and says, You get me the stuff to beat this little bastard, and I want you to put it on this card. Use both sides. I did not grow up in Aiken, South Carolina. Pinkerton came up with seven entries for the 3x5 card. Dukakis' national defense positions, his records on taxes and spending, the pollution of Boston Harbor, his position on the death penalty, his position on the Pledge of Allegiance, and to mandatory sentences for drug offenders. Of course, the longest and most powerful item on the card was Dukakis's policy on prison furloughs, including one case in which a murderer named Horton got a furlough from a Massachusetts penitentiary. And on his weekend of liberty, attacked a couple in Maryland, raping a woman and stabbing her fiance. The systemic use of the items on that three-by-five card to define Michael Dukakis won George Bush the 1988 election in what is perhaps, in the modern era, the most sustained successful negative campaign that we've seen. We'll tell you all about all of that right after a word from our sponsor. The Great Courses gives me joy, nothing negative about that, and they've got a lecture series called The Modern Political Tradition, Hobbes to Habermas. It's a look at how theorists over the centuries have pondered how the state should best be governed. Order from eight of the Great Courses' best-selling courses, including the Modern Political Tradition, add up to 80% off the original price. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That is thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. The general election campaign of 1988 was not a great competition over weighty issues of the day. The primaries had been dominated by the questions of character. Gary Hart, Democratic senator from Colorado, was the likely nominee on the Democratic side, everybody thought, until he was photographed with a comely blonde named Donna Rice sitting on his lap. Joe Biden was bounced out of the race when it was found that he was cribbing from another politician's speeches. The Wall Street Journal reported that Pat Robertson, The evangelical preacher who came in second in the Iowa caucuses had had his first child a few months before his marriage. The general election has come to be known for the systematic dismantling of Michael Dukakis' image. At first, he was a future-oriented pragmatist with an approachable side. He cut his own grass, took public transportation to work, and loved to talk about his snowblower. That was not the latest model. But by the end of the campaign, he was defined as just another woolly-headed liberal, a McGovern, a Carter, a Mondale. The Bush team worked hard to use opposition research to characterize Dukakis. But when they fell down on the job, Michael Dukakis bravely put his shoulder to the wheel and helped his adversary paint him as soft on crime, weak on defense, and out of touch. It's so hard to find examples of bipartisan cooperation these days. But in the fall of Michael Dukakis, It was really both the Bush and Dukakis campaigns who joined together for the effort. In retrospect, it looks like Michael Dukakis was a mess and that Bush was the inevitable victor. I mean, Bush did win 53% of the vote and he took 40 states, but this wasn't always the case for George Bush. First of all, no sitting vice president had won the presidency since Martin Van Buren in 1836. The list is actually really short of vice presidents who rose to be president. There's Bush, Van Buren, Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. Ronald Reagan had put the country on the path to prosperity, but his administration was enjoying a significant second-term scandal over its efforts to sell arms for hostages, a break of its stated policy, and using the proceeds of those sales to support the Nicaraguan Contras, a covert funding that was against the law. If you believe that presidential contests often go to the person who is a change from the incumbent, Dukakis looked like a change from the disengaged ideologue Reagan. Dukakis was pragmatic, detail-oriented, a manager of the future. He was one of those labeled an Atari Democrat. All of this had Bush very antsy as he waited for the Democrats to pick their nominee. He wanted to shake loose Reagan and get engaged in the campaign where he could show that he was his own man. Here's how Richard Ben Kramer put it in What It Takes, his magisterial book on the 1988 presidential campaign. Quote, the real problem, the fact that the root of all this unease was Bush couldn't make news because Bush had nothing to say. Without an opponent, me instead of him, the Bush campaign was about nothing. George Will, the conservative columnist, put the knee to the groin thusly in a piece about Bush. The unpleasant sound Bush is emitting as he traipses from one conservative gathering to another is the thin, tiny arf, the sound of a lapdog. That is not nice at all. This led Bush campaign strategists to suggest that the vice president break with Reagan in some way to show that he was his own man, but Bush who had a driving ambition to be sure, was also fiercely loyal. He wouldn't do anything that looked like it was undermining the president. When there was a story in the press suggesting Bush had said something negative privately about Attorney General Ed Meese, who was in his own little fix, Bush issued one of the best denials of all time. I deny that I have ever given my opinion to anybody on anything. Atwater suggested leaking that Bush was behind the ouster of Reagan's chief of staff, Don Regan. Though Bush's political team and Nancy Reagan wanted Reagan out, according to John Meacham's new biography on Bush, the vice president wouldn't betray the president, who wanted to keep Reagan. You help me in Iowa and New Hampshire, Bush told his political aides, don't meddle in the White House. But while Bush was loyal, the White House operation didn't give him a great platform to soar towards his eventual presidency. To build an image for himself using his office wasn't really available for him. Atwater blamed this on Bush's self-effacing nature drilled into him by his mother and part of that sort of the Bush family code. Never you're supposed to use the phrase, I am. When playing team sports, always talk about the team, not yourself. But Bush also felt marginalized himself by the Reagan staff, particularly Chief of Staff Howard Baker. It's almost as if I don't exist, Bush said to his audio diary. And aside about Atwater quickly, this campaign of 1988 was often labeled as the campaign of the spin doctor. That term spin came much more into the conversation during this campaign and the spin room, which we all know now about after debates, was talked about really for the first time at great length in the debate coverage of 1988. One analysis of debate night coverage in 88 relative to the campaigns that had preceded it showed a significant increase in the amount of analysis dedicated not to what the campaign was actually doing but to the spin the campaign was emitting to put the best gloss on what it was doing. There had been manager types behind campaigns before. Of course. So that wasn't exactly new. I mean, there'd been Gary Hart, who worked for McGovern in 72. Mark Hanna had backed McKinley in 1896. But Atwater did represent a kind of new breed of strategist that came in the post-party boss age of politics. There are two sort of different kinds of strategists. In the party boss era, there didn't need to be strategists because the party bosses ran the show. So candidates were just picked by the bosses who were themselves kind of the strategists. What Mark Hanna did in 1896 and Eugene Dawes, according to Carl Rose's new book – was go around the bosses. So you needed strategists of that kind to go around the existing system. But Gary Hart in 1972 was also this kind of um, strategist uh, doing some spinning but was really the one who put together the tactical map and figured out the organization. What Atwater was was both the political strategist but also had this kind of press public relations side And in the age of television, this ability to manipulate images, and this is the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle, the CNN is coming online as a force, the role of the image shaper becomes more important. Of course, Michael Deaver had played this role for Reagan, and Bush's team then was kind of modeled on that. He had Atwater and Roger Ailes, the conservative guru who would later take the helm. At Fox News. Their talent was for using focus groups in the tactics of marketing, as I said, the public relations spin, which itself also wasn't exactly a new phenomenon. In 1962, Daniel Boorstin wrote a book called The Image, which talked about pseudo events, events like press conferences and presidential debates, which are manufactured just in order to be reported. They're not an event that people then go and report on. They're an event created to create the reporting. So, Atwater and Ailes were an evolution, but they took it to a new level. They would succeed in dispelling one of Bush's image problems, but would achieve their real greatness in the negative image they put forward of Dukakis. But now back to Bush. His identity crisis went beyond being merely seen as an appendage to Ronald Reagan or of Ronald Reagan. He was seen as a wimp, a word that followed him around like a kick-me sign. The idea that Bush was somehow weak had come up early in strategy sessions, although his advisors phrased it as the problem being that he was not being seen as his own man. But where it really burst into public was on a Newsweek magazine cover in October of 1987. On that cover, the images of Bush piloting his motorboat, a sturdy gaze on his face as he fixes his jaw against the wind and adversity a determined jut of purpose and resolve on his face. And then there's the headline, Fighting the Wimp Factor. Ouch. Inside the... The story is brutal. Anyway, inside the, the billboard graph of the story says, Bush suffers from a potentially crippling handicap, a perception that he isn't strong enough or tough enough for the challenges of the Oval Office. A brief other aside, when you see the candidates now on the campaign trail, particularly on the Republican side, gesticulating to show how strong they are, uh, you can kind of tie a line or throw a line back to this notion of being not strong enough for the office. This of course, this notion of wimpiness, this notion of a man bare chested on horseback taking on all comers will echo again. When we talk about Dukakis and his effort to show that he was a strong commander or could be a strong commander-in-chief. The charge was a little crazy when you apply it to Bush. I mean, he had been shot down as a pilot in World War II. By the way, his plane was hit, then he finished the bombing run, then ejected from the plane in a parachute. You cannot do that if you are a wimp. It's against the code. He also ran the nation's spy agency. The, um, the CIA was in China during a pretty hectic period. These are not jobs for patsies. And he was a man of athletic skill. He played baseball at Yale. Uh, and then as the campaign started, uh, they would tell the Secret Service to let the press know where he was running so that people could get shots of him jogging on routes so that he could be seen engaged in vigorous outdoor activity. Nevertheless, Bush's prudent nature and his difficulty with declarative sentences, born of that same sense of prudence, put the rap on Bush that he didn't have the medal for the job. So this was a real challenge for Bush's image meisters to help him fight the image that he was a wimp and so they hatched a plan. It came in January of 1988. Big moment, interview with Dan Rather. It was essentially a pre-rehearsed fight. Roger Ailes said to Bush, you're either going to go in there and go toe-to-toe with this guy or you're going back to Kennebunkport. Remember when Reagan revived his campaign in a confrontation with the publisher of the Nashua Telegram or you know, the, the I paid for this microphone moment? Well, Bush was essentially going to do that for himself if everything went right in this live interview with Dan Rather. And the Bush men insisted that the interview be live so that if there was this confrontation they were structuring, it couldn't be edited out. So as the evening news started that evening, the television viewing audience first came to see the vice president seated behind a vast desk. In front of him was a large gavel. Behind him hung a dark oil painting with an ornate frame. To his left on the desk was a large picture of President Reagan facing outward towards the camera, given pride of place a person might usually give a picture of their spouse. To his right was a television set on which rather could be seen. The room was Bush's ceremonial office in the Senate. The vice president is the president of the Senate, hence the gavel. But it was a display that made him look like the head of a junta that had come to power in some country you've never heard of. Here's how the bickering gets started.
1: And you've impugned uh, my integrity by suggesting with one of your little boards here that I didn't tell the truth about what what, uh, Felix Rodriguez. You didn't accuse me of it, but you made that suggestion. And other people were in the meeting, including Mr. Nick Brady, And he has said that my version is correct. And so I find this to be a rehash and a little bit, if you'll excuse me, a misrepresentation on the part of CBS who said you're doing political profiles on all the candidates, and then you come up with something that has been exhaustively looked into.
0: The two men went back and forth down the rabbit hole. It was live, and so the exchange was really ragged. But here's a key bit. And I've answered every
1: question put before me. Now, if you have a question, what I do it? have one. Please, I, I have one. Please file. You have what? said that it, if you had known, you said that if you had known this was an arms for hostages yes. swap, that you would have opposed it. You also said exactly. that, then, that you did me, not know ask, that. May you, I answer that? The, that
0: the wasn't right, a question. It, 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 was yes, a it was a statement. Yes, it was a statement. It, uh, and let, let me it. ask the question the if I may first.
1: created this program, as testified or stated publicly, he did not think it was arms for
0: hostages, and that's it was the only later that, and that's me. Bush says he didn't know it was an arms-for-hostage deal, but we know now from Bush's diaries and John Meacham's book, Destiny and Power, that the truth is something different. Here's what Meacham writes. The record is clear that Bush was aware that the United States, in contravention of its own stated policy, was trading arms for hostages as part of an initiative to reach out to moderate elements in Iran. Bush even talked about this in his audio cassette diary. I'm one of the few people that know fully the details, Bush said. It's not a subject we can talk about. Secretary of State George Shultz and Cap Weinberger, who was the Secretary of Defense, had been in meetings with Bush where they argued against the arms for hostages swap, but where Bush had sided with Reagan in approving the swap. VP was part of it, Shultz said, according to notes in a meeting with Nick Brady. Getting drawn into a web of lies blows his integrity. He's finished then. Should be very careful about how he plays the loyal lieutenant role now. So Rather was actually on to something in this interview, but Bush wouldn't relent. He was going toe-to-toe with Rather, as his media advisor Ailes had suggested. And as the fight was going on, Ailes motioned to Bush and held up a piece of paper that had written on it in all caps, WALKED OFF THE AIR. It was a signal for Bush to unleash a stinger he had in his back pocket.
1: It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? Now, would you like that? Mr. I Vice have respect President, for you, but I don't have respect for what you're doing here tonight.
0: Afterward, Bush was steamed and not sure how he did. He called his son, George W., who told him, man, you knocked it out of the park. Ted Koppel of Nightline said that Rather had allowed himself to be maneuvered into serving, quote, as high priest in the ceremonial de-wimping of George Bush. It wasn't the only time Bush used the press as a punching bag. Here's the CBS report after the confrontation with Rather, the night after. It begins with a quotation from Democratic strategist Robert Squire.
1: I think George Bush has decided that press bashing uh, is a blood sport. And since he needs to sort of pick up the manliness in his profile, uh, he picked out uh, Dan Rather last night and had a shot at him. Some officials in other Republican campaigns agree with that. They point out that Bush attacked Des Moines Register editor James Gannon in a recent televised debate here to applause when questioned about the same issue, Iran-Contra. And you, your paper today, had that question raised as if I hadn't answered it. And I resent it, frankly. And I think that you owe me now. You owe it to me. In fact, sources in other campaigns speculate Bush's strategy may have been to set up, rather. The vice president is always planning to go on the attack.
0: This orchestration of a campaign moment was designed to reframe Bush's weakness, and it'll be important. It'll be a bookend, really, from when we later get to Dukakis's effort to reframe his toughness in the general election. Bush showed he was tough in another way, too, that would foreshadow the toughness he would let loose on Dukakis. In the 88 nominating race on the Republican side, he came in third in the Iowa caucuses. Bush had won Iowa in an 80, so it was a particular blow for his campaign, Remember, he'd won in 80, surprising Reagan, throwing that campaign into a whirl. That meant Bush had to revive things in New Hampshire, and to do so, he was going to have to go negative on Bob Dole, who had won Iowa. Bush's advisors Ailes and, uh, and Atwater created an ad called Senator Straddle, and here's how Richard Ben Kramer writes about that ad. It wasn't pretty. Every time Dole showed up on the screen, there were two Dole faces, two-faced, pointed towards one another with the word straddled across the screen. The INF, the oil import fee, then taxes. On taxes, the screen said straddle, present tense, which faded out to taxes. He can't say no. The voiceover said, Bob Dole straddles, and he just won't promise not to raise taxes, and you know what that means. Bush said, God, this is awful. But Bush was the only one who had made a no new taxes pledge, and so this was a way to distinguish himself from Dole in the tax-sensitive Granite State. Remember that even the hint of a tax increase had hurt Reagan in New Hampshire when he campaigned against Ford in 1976. Bush didn't want to run this ad at first. He kept putting it off. But in the end, he ran the hard-hitting Senator Straddle ad, and the average New Hampshireian, which isn't even a word, uh, Granite Stater- The average Granite Stater with the TV would see Bob Dole made into that two-faced liar 18 times over the next 60 hours, according to one account. If the rather confrontation was public proof that Bush wasn't a wimp, the use of his ad against Dole was proof that he could play hardball when it was required. It seems hard to imagine that a single ad could turn the tide, but the popular tale is that the ad changed the course of the election. Again, this is another one of those moments where the election may very well have been trending in that direction anyway, and the ad just became the symbol that our understanding gets driven through. It was such a blow after Dole lost New Hampshire that he famously took a shot at Bush on the air. The two men appeared on NBC together after the campaign returns came in. Tom Brokaw asked Bush if he had any message for Dole. Vice President wished him well. Dole was asked the same question. Did he have a message for Bush? And Dole said Tell him to stop lying about my record. So how Bush defined Dole gives us a little window into how he would go on to define Dukakis. At the Democratic Convention in Atlanta in the summer of 1988, Dukakis and the Democratic crowd portrayed Bush as weak and ineffectual subordinate to Ronald Reagan. In his speech, Ted Kennedy listed what he saw as a series of shortcomings – Of the Reagan years and then after each one would ask where's George and soon the crowd was chanting where's George James Baker the Bush strategist writes in his memoirs they ridiculed him both as a public figure and a human being if that's how they wanted to play their hand more power to them the irony however is that many of the same people who jumped from their seats writes Baker to cheer these mean-spirited attacks would later whine about George's campaign being too negative Baker and others are revising history a little here. Of course, it's helpful to spin that Bush ran a tough campaign only as a counterpunch to the tough Democratic convention, but the Bush team had not been pushed into being tough on Dukakis because the Democrats had been tough on the vice president at their convention. They'd planned to run a campaign to define Dukakis because they couldn't define George As early as May of the year, many months before the Democratic Convention, Ailes had pitched the Dukakis strategy to Bush and gotten his approval. Bush had said at the time, this is from Meacham's book, Bush had said at the time of the early negative attacks, it looks like we're desperate. And Ailes said back to him, we are desperate. So on the eve of the Republican Convention, at the end of the summer, Roger Ailes wrote a memo that put a fine point on the effort to redefine Dukakis. It read, On election day, the voter must know three things about Michael Dukakis. He will raise taxes. He is opposed to the death penalty, even for drug kingpins and murderers. And he is an extreme liberal, even a pacifist, on the subject of national defense. The effort to define Dukakis had a gargantuan Bush staff behind it. When it became clear that Dukakis was going to be the nominee, the Bush campaign sent a team of six young operatives to Massachusetts in a motorhome. They went through 25 years of the Daily Boston Herald, the Weekly Phoenix, and then the 25 years of the Boston Globe, culling 135,000 quotes in a two-week blitz, according to an account in Bad Boy, John Brady's book about Lee Atwater. No more soul was too small. The search led to the Brookline City Council Minutes of 1949, where they found a letter written by Dukakis protesting the Korean War. They also discovered that Kitty Dukakis, his wife, in her yearbook, had written a statement about stopping male oppression. The opposition team assembled a 312-page textbook called, wait for it, The Hazards of Duke which was the larger version of the material behind that 3x5 card that Pinkerton had given Atwater. The biggest attack that Bush would unveil was his criticism of the prison furlough program Dukakis had supported while governor of Massachusetts. The attack had first surfaced in a Democratic debate when Al Gore asked Dukakis about the program that had furloughed first-degree murderers. Eleven murderers who had been furloughed had bolted and just decided not to go back to prison. Two of them had committed other murders while out on passes. When Pinkerton, the Bush research guy, looked into the story further, he found a mountain of coverage – In the Massachusetts paper about the program, the most powerful case that he found in this coverage was of Willie Horton, the first-degree murderer who on a weekend pass fled to Maryland where he raped a woman twice at knife point and stabbed her fiancé. If I can make Willie Horton a household name, we'll win the election, said Atwater. The Bush campaign's use of Horton has long been the subject of intense controversy. At the post-campaign gathering at Harvard in 1988, where the managers from both sides, they do this after every campaign, the managers, the Democrats and the Republicans get together with journalists and political scientists, and they talk over what just happened. Well, at the version of this one after the 88 campaign, Susan Estrich, who was the manager for the Dukakis campaign, and Leah Atwater almost came to blows over the use of the racially charged stereotypes in this Horton ad and in this question of rape. Estrich pointed out that she herself had been Uh, A victim of rape. What's clear is that the Bush team wanted to make Horton an issue, but the mugshot image of Horton—this is the real incendiary thing—which became associated with the story was that use of the mugshot was clearly meant to stir racial fears. But it never appeared in a Bush ad. It appeared in an ad by a Super PAC that was supporting Bush. But the Bush team said they didn't know about it, didn't know it was coming. Although there were the people who in the Super PAC had worked for Ailes. Ailes loved the attack in general, but he makes the case that the campaign would never have wanted to use the image, and indeed, in their own ads, chose not to use the image because they thought that would turn what was a crime story into a race story, and that would diminish its effectiveness for Bush. So, Ailes argues they would never have wanted to use the image. We report, you decide. The mugshot image was also used in flyers, but ultimately, the Bush campaign adds that they ran on the furlough issue... There had no picture of Horton. It just showed prisoners going in and out of a revolving door. The furlough issue was more complicated than Republicans had made it seem. The program had been instituted in Massachusetts by Dukakis's Republican predecessor. Reagan actually had presided over such a program in California. There were 42 states in all that had a similar program. As a congressman, Bush had helped found a chain of halfway houses and spoke warmly as vice president of the work they did. One inhabitant in these halfway houses committed murder. And the Democrats ultimately tried to run their own ad, basically trying to willy Horton George Bush. The ad said, In 1968, George Bush helped an ex-convict fund a halfway house for early release felons in Houston, Texas. In 1982, one of those prisoners raped and murdered a minister's wife. It sounds like a tit-for-tat attack, but when you're playing on the other guy's turf, your response only keeps the issue in the conversation. And when it's a conversation that isn't good for your party, you're losing. And in the end, that, what that is is basically it's, a, it's about issue control. And that's what the Horton ad may very well have been in the end for Dukakis. It was easier to imagine that a Democrat was weak on crime because that's what people already thought about Democrats because the party was associated with the inner cities and African Americans. So even if you're debating the finer points of the argument with the other party, You're getting hurt because people think if it's a conversation about crime, Democrats are going to be on the losing end. In early August, rumors surfaced that Dukakis had been treated by a psychiatrist, which is why he wouldn't release his medical records. John Sununu, who would become Bush's chief of staff, told reporters to go look into it. When President Reagan was asked at a press conference about the issue, he said he didn't want to pick on an invalid Reagan quickly apologized and said he was just joking, but Democrats thought the joke was a calculated effort to ignite the false rumor and spread it around Washington. The Dukakis had been treated for depression. At this point, you can refer to the Eagleton affair in your whistle-stop workbook. Um, Politically, the smear worked, though, because while the allegation was totally false, it forced Dukakis to hold a press conference with his doctor to deny that he'd been treated for depression. As we march through the systematic effort by the Bush campaign to paint Dukakis as an out-of-touch liberal, they commissioned focus groups in which they showed the furlough attack was working, turning off voters to Dukakis and turning them towards Bush. Also, Dukakis had vetoed a bill requiring public school teachers to lead students in the Pledge of Allegiance. This was more evidence, the Bush people were pushing, that Dukakis was out of touch with the mainstream. Bush also referred to him on the stump as a card-carrying member of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, a phrase that cleverly re-evoked the McCarthy-era charges of subversion. The focus groups they used showed all of this stuff was working. And while Bush was painting Dukakis as the other, he was wrapping himself in flags and apple pie, which is very gooey. He visited uh, Findlay, Ohio, which is known as Flag City, and a flag factory in New Jersey, Don't you think it's about time you came out from behind the flag, Dukakis said, and told us what you intend to do to provide basic health insurance for 37 million Americans? Dukakis said this was going to be a campaign about competence, not ideology. But it didn't turn out that way. What would make Dukakis even easier to beat, writes James Baker, was that his campaign apparently didn't understand the importance of symbolism in American life and American politics. It wasn't that de didn't understand symbolism. They knew symbolism was important. After all, this was the guy who rode transportation. He was a regular guy. He mowed his own lawn. They understood symbolism. They just didn't know how to use symbolism correctly. And this brings us to the big moment of terrible symbolism. It comes in the turret of an M1 Abrams tank, which became one of the great if the great campaign photo op backfire in presidential history. The date was September 13th, 1988, just a couple of months from Election Day. The Bush campaign had been successful enough in painting an image of Dukakis uh, as weak on defense and that he wouldn't keep America safe from threats overseas. So the campaign had to respond by convincing voters that, yes, Dukakis could be a strong commander-in-chief. So basically, Dukakis has his own version of the WIMP problem. Bush had staged a fight with Dan Rather, among other things, to show that he wasn't a wimp, and so now Dukakis was going to do the same thing. The venue for his response was the General Dynamics facility in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Ninety reporters were brought to the facility on a clear day, and they pointed their bright faces and cameras towards a sort of hangar-like building, from which emerged a 68-ton M1A1 Abrams main battle tank. In the tank stood the Democratic candidate. He was seen in two ways. One, without any headgear for the first round of the photo shoot, But then for safety reasons, when the tank was moving across the field, as it might in battle, Dukakis put on a tank commander's helmet with his name across the brow. He stood through the hatch, shot smiles, and pointed forward with his finger was not a commanding image. He either looked like someone trying to be something he wasn't, or he looked like just exactly who he was, which means the man known for pushing his own lawnmower had no business jostling around in a tank. The reporters brought to witness the event were doubled over in laughter, according to a story in Politico by Josh King, devoted to deconstructing the moment as the worst campaign event in history. Nice event, one staffer said to the advance man in charge. It may have cost us the election, but besides that, it was great. The next day, the lead in the New York Times read, forget John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, forget Rambo, meet macho Mike Dukakis. The helmet that he was wearing, oversized and goofy, was later referred to by campaign reporters and the Bush campaign as a Snoopy dog hat. Sig Rogic, who was the ad maker for the Bush team, saw the video and immediately turned it into an ad. In the ad, the narrator describes all the weapons systems Dukakis was against, while the footage of him riding in the tank played underneath. The ad ran during the third game of the World Series. So even though this happened in September, they didn't run the ad till later. Knowing that it was powerful, they wanted to knock him at the end. As the campaign wore on, things got desperate. In late October, there was speculation the Washington Post was going to run a story about a rumored affair between George Bush and a woman named Jennifer Fitzgerald. The rumor of the story had caused the stock market to drop. When asked about it, Dukakis campaign manager Donna Brazil, said, I wasn't on the stock market yesterday, but I understood they got a little concerned that George Bush was going to the White House with somebody other than Barbara. I think George Bush owes the American people to fess up. There was no Washington Post story, and Brazil had to resign after the remark. Dukakis called Bush to apologize. This was the second... Such episode. During the Democratic primaries, Dukakis had fired his close advisor John Sasso when it was learned that he'd been behind the press leaks that had helped reporters find the dirt on Joe Biden's exaggerations and plagiarisms. And while Dukakis was trying to stay clean in public, that didn't mean that there wasn't work going on behind the scenes. And this just gives you another sense of uh, how kind of dirty it can get. George Stephanopoulos writes about being on the rapid response team doing the remarkably ineffectual job of rebutting the Republican attacks. But late in the race, a federal prisoner named Brett Kimberlin was telling reporters he once sold drugs to Dan Quayle, Bush's pick for the vice presidency, and that Quayle might have sold some of those drugs himself. Further rumors suggested that years earlier, a grand jury examining the evidence had covered it up under pressure from prosecutors close to Quayle's family. Stephanopoulos writes, If I could find the disgruntled grand jurors and convince them to talk, we'd win, and I'd be a hero. So I bought a plane ticket to Indianapolis and holed up on the airport Holiday Inn with photocopied courthouse records. After a day of cold-calling people who had no idea what I was talking about, I knew I was on a fool's errand. My sleuthing wasn't illegal, just criminally incompetent and a little slimy. I suppose we would have used the information if it were true, but how naive and desperate could I have been to believe that I would uncover last minute bombshell that every news organization in America had missed. The next assist Governor Dukakis gave George Bush came on October 13th at the presidential debate. The first question from Bernie Shaw of CNN was to Dukakis.
1: Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped, And murdered would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer no i don't bernard and i think you know that i've opposed the death penalty during all of my life Uh, i don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent and i think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime we've done so in my own state and it's one of the reasons why we have
0: the question had nothing to do with the actual job of the presidency, and it was basically a gimmick. The three female journalists on the panel, ann Compton of ABC, Andrea Mitchell of NBC, and Margaret Warner of Newsweek, had tried several times to dissuade Shaw from using Kitty Dukakis's name, but never mind. He asked the question anyway, and Dukakis's answer was basically seen as cold and unfeeling. He went on a good deal longer than the clip that I've played talking about how he would fight the war on drugs, Giving a very boring policy, a thorough but boring policy answer. It was what you might actually want a president to do, which is to have beliefs that were unshakable by personal emotion and impervious to the gimmick question. Whatever. (laughs) That's not what debates are about. And it was another confirmation that this man who had supported a prison furlough program was so ideological and out of touch with reality that – He gave this boring answer to an emotionally charged question. In the end, Michael Dukakis lost big to George Bush, who defined him relentlessly, and Dukakis couldn't regain control of his own narrative. It's not like he wasn't warned, though. In Bad Boy, the story of Lee Atwater's life, John Brady writes that Pug Ravenel, a Democrat who lost to Atwater in South Carolina campaigns, wrote to the Dukakis campaign early on, and, and his letter said, My very strong belief is that Lee Atwater is the premier negative strategist in American politics. I have the deep suspicion that Atwater will begin hitting Dukakis very early, perhaps even before the convention. If Mike does not respond right away, he could risk having the negatives well set in the minds of Americans before he could begin to change them. So why hadn't Dukakis taken the advice? Well, he wanted to run a positive campaign, at least in public. That's what Dukakis says now. The Reagan years were divisive and he wanted to give the American people an uplifting message. That's probably part of it. But there was another part, which is that he was the one being defined, which means fighting back to be in control of your own narrative. That presumably could have been done without having to go negative. There's also a theory that gave rise to Bill Clinton's campaign in 1992, which was basically that Dukakis was a flawed candidate, not, not in the tactics he didn't use, and, but that he was just too liberal for the electorate. So when Bill Clinton ran four years later, he stressed that he was tough on crime and pro-death penalty as opposed to Dukakis. In the end, 1988 was seen as one of the most negative campaigns ever. This is the way Newsweek wrote about it. Anyone who felt good about American politics after the 1988 presidential campaign probably also enjoys train wrecks or maybe a day at the beach watching an oil slick wash ashore. Was it objectively more negative? Campaigns are always negative in some degree, but the political scientists didn't find that by the measure of the ads run that this was a particularly negative campaign. But that may not be that helpful. Uh, there was a great deal of coverage in this campaign of the tactics used in 1988, which meant there were a lot more stories about the men who ran the campaign and the negative strategies they were using than there perhaps had been in the past. It was called the year of the handler. And so it seemed like a nastier campaign because regardless of the number of the ads that were used, the press talked about the nastiness more. Uh, and therefore, it was more in the conversation. Also, there on the other side, it wasn't balanced out by a great deal of talking about the issues. In fact, the, the rape death penalty question at the debate wasn't really about the death penalty at all. If it had been, Dukakis's answer, which was wonky and issue-oriented, would have been perfectly fine and not seen as so out of touch. But it's clear in the end that the campaign was driven by defining Dukakis negatively, not building up George Bush. As Baker writes, I make no apologies for going after Dukakis on prison furloughs, the pledge, or anything else. He led with his chin on a lot of those issues, and we used them to take him out. The successful march to define Dukakis was precise and devastating and proved that George Bush, when pushed, was no wimp. Though Bush did worry to his diary about the charge that he had taken the low road. I don't know what we could do differently, he said to his diary. We had to define the guy. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slink.com And also leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember the modern political tradition, Hobbes to Habermas. That's Jürgen Habermas. Order from eight of the best-selling courses from The Great Courses, uh, including The Modern Political Tradition. You get up to 80% off the original price. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Tony Field. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com panoply. Our Whistlestop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who cannot be defined by any negative attacks. He is all solid gold. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson.